welcome to the Smart Connector podcast, which looks at the power of connection in business and life. Featuring solo episodes as well as a range of exciting interviews with entrepreneurs across multiple sectors, we offer tips and advice to build your impact, wealth and success, attract others for all the right reasons, and become a Smart Connector, the architect of your amazing business and life. Today's interview is with Fred Dust, who's a former senior partner and global managing director at the legendary design firm IDEO. Fred's passion is showing how to design conversations and have meetings that are creative, inspiring and impactful. In his practice as a designer, Fred began to approach conversations differently. After years of trying to broker communications between colleagues and clients, he came to believe that there had to be a way to design the art of conversation itself with intention and purpose, but still retaining creativity and playfulness. He wrote his book, Making Conversation, to codify what he learned and convey the four elements essential to successful exchanges, commitment, creative listening, clarity, and context. This was such a fascinating episode for me to host as I'm so passionate about the topic of connection. We talk about our shared history working at board level and global design agencies and why conversations have to be so carefully constructed in creative settings. And we also look at the impact of language in a political and business arena. And finally, the key to bringing connection into everyday conversations. Welcome to today's interview. I have such an incredible guest for you, Fred Dust. Welcome, Fred. So happy to be here, Jane. Thank you for having me. So Fred has an incredible history, but the thing that he's best known for is his amazing book about conversations. And we're going to go really deep into that subject today. And we're also going to look at Fred's history, where he actually learned how to make these really powerful conversations and what impact the art of conversation has on business success. So Fred, tell us about your history. I'd love to hear about where it all started for you. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Once you start writing a book, you realize that it all started in different places than you thought it did. But but for me, where it really began was kind of right at the end of 2016, we had seen a, a radical shift in the U.S. politics, um, US, U.S. political system, change in president. Most of my work to date at that point had been with the Obama administration. A lot of it had been with Elizabeth Warren, working Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Social Security, lots and lots of really innovative work in government, philanthropy, and nonprofit, as well as in the media space. Because in order to make social change, you really have to be in the media space as well. And my last real project was with the then Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, who is about to issue an epidemic of isolation and loneliness in America. Really, he saw that as the root of so much of the, basically interesting, he, he saw sort of disconnection as the root of so much issues around depression, opioid addiction, gun violence, things like oh, that. Oh, so true. So true, right? And so he got fired and I decided I needed to write a book on how to have conversations and how to use creativity to have the hardest conversations of your life. So basically, worked on the proposal. I just think it's kind of funny. I'll quickly tell you the story. Full, worked on the proposal sold it. The book was actually entirely about how we'd lost conversation in the world. And I sat down with my publisher. And if you've ever, you know, sat with a publisher and like, they're like, whining and dining you and they're like, don't worry, the book's yours. We're not going to touch a piece of it. It's all yours. And they were like, 
except the book has to be entirely optimistic about how we can have conversations again in the world. And I was like, well, that's a different book. And she was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like so- but it was, it turns out she was right. It was the book we needed. It took me longer to write than what I thought, but it was definitely the book we needed right now. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it, it became an uplifting and inspiring book as opposed to a book that was more analytical and maybe a little bit dark. That is a huge change, isn't it? And, and so did you have to go back and start from the beginning or did you just adapt what you'd written and just give it a sort of bouncier, lighter feel? No, 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 no. It was, I mean, <laughs> so I, actually, ironically, a lot of the examples were historical examples of where people had gotten through hard conversations in the past. So there was a lot of optimism in the kind of examples that we were pulling from. But what I needed to do is also be able to situate the same possibility within the conversations that were happening today. And, you know, my first presumption was, oh, I'll go meet with the Dalai Lama, which I did. And I'll go meet with, you know, blank and blank. And, and you know, all these people who are like kind of leaders in kind of like the space. And I was like, that just doesn't work because we're not all the Dalai Lama, right? You know, so it's like, so what we needed is I needed really to find everyday people, like small business owners, like a principal of a small school, like a very religious woman who had a, who started a sex book club in Salt Lake City, but really find these people and unpack their stories of how they'd gotten through like really hard conversations. So that was a joy. And, you know, what's funny is at the very end, I was interviewing a young addict. She was like at a school for addicted youth. And I said to her, I was like, you know, your work is not going to, your, this interview is not going to make in the book. The book's already been submitted. And we were doing the interview. And at the end, she said to me, Hey, like, do you, can I ask you one question? And I was like, of course. And she was like, well, are you cured? And I was like, well, I wasn't sick. And she was like, I think you were. And I was like, Oh yeah, she's right. I was sick. And so it, Going through this exploration really helped kind of cure me in a lot of ways. Wow. So when you said that you were sick, what do you mean? In what way do you mean that? And I started the book in a place of despair. I thought for sure we had lost it. And, and what I found instead was that we hadn't. And that, in fact, there's a mythology. And frankly, it's to the benefit of the news hook. And it's the benefit of our political leaders to kind of talk about discord as opposed to talk about places where we can find accord. And I began to sort of be like, you know, I was like, oh, it's not so much phones and it's not so much TV. It's actually the news hook. It's actually like the fact that that our cultures, major media organizations and our political cultures really rely on a kind of sense that there is unrest and and discord in in our countries here. And I know this is the case in the UK as well. So, yeah, that is so interesting because, of course, that makes us feel disempowered and a bit off balance. And then that makes them more powerful, our leaders. I totally get it. Then that introduces a different dynamic. Whereas if we feel as though we can reach out and and get connection anytime we want, we can have really empowering conversations, then we become powerful in ourselves, don't we? And we have personal leadership. So I totally get that. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. And so honestly, the work I'm doing now with the current business that I have going is like, it's really about unrelentlessly telling stories of how people get through the most positive, the hardest conversations of their life. And that's been, it continues to be a joy to do. So. Yeah. So many people run from hard conversations, don't they, Fred? They do. They do. And do you think people need to be taught how to have those hard conversations? I think, well, so, you know, I'll give you a little context. Like the book has seven chapters, seven C's. There's like, you know, fundamental pillars of of the book. 
And if you first look at the book, you're like, oh, it's a business book. You know, that's, that's what it is. And I don't conceive it as a business book. I, I perceive it as an approach, approach that actually kind of allows for inspiration to think about how you can actually ha- handle the, the conversations that you need to handle. Because the way that you, Jane, may handle a hard conversation and get through it might be different from the way that I, I do it. You know, it's like I have certain skills and toolkits and you might have other skills and toolkits. And, and the point is finding the places where you know you can do it and figure out how, how to do it. The one thing I, I recommend is if you're going into a hard conversation and there, there's really three kinds of hard conversations, ones where, in my mind, the really hard ones, ones where there is clear difference in the room. Power dynamics are different. There might be different kinds of people than you who look different from you or act different from you. That's one kind. The second is where something has to happen. You have to have a transaction. I'm sure many of your listeners, it's like, we've got to make the sale. (laughs) We've got to like, you know, get this going. And then the third ones are the ones that give you a pit in your stomach where you're just like, you're afraid. And you don't even even know why you're afraid. But those are the three where I'm like, you really need to make a plan for how you have those conversations. And a lot of the book teaches you like different ways to kind of plan for those kinds of, of hard conversations. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. And of course, in business, there are a lot of hard conversations that need to be had. And I think my experience, because we talked before the interview about how we both have worked at a, at a high level in really sort of very well-respected and recognized design agencies in those kind of board level situations in media agencies. Certainly my experience was that a lot of hard conversations were being had constantly. That's right. And I think probably even both your and my experience working for those kinds of firms, one of the things that we probably ran into, both in terms of being the recipient of and the don't and the givers of, was critique, right? Because actually, if you're working in a design firm or design-based firm, Criticism is a foundation. Like you can't get to good work without doing critique. And and for me, at being the very top of my company, all I did was give critique every day for like, you know I can imagine. Yeah. And so I had to figure out a way that made that feel safe and fair and comfortable and not miserable for me and not miserable for the people who are receiving the critique. And so I built a set of rules for criticism that I used pretty much religiously all the way through my entire career and still do today. Well, I would love to hear more about those rules because I think so many people struggle with giving negative feedback. And I understand as well because design is obviously a creative business and a lot of designers feel very exposed. And there's a real difference between being somebody who is putting your creative self out to the world constantly and somebody who is effectively bringing some other service to the world and you just do feel a lot more exposed don't you so you do you do and yeah and and you know it's interesting actually like in the u.s at least for instance i, I went to school for architecture as my graduate degree and you know i would say we lost about 30 percent of the women during the three-year period because of the culture of critique i would say that of the people who stayed the level of substance abuse just because um, people kind of had to deal with kind of like the the hardships of critique. And I remember leaving grad school and being like, that's not the way critique has to be. It doesn't have to be brutal. You know, it can be gentle. So the rules I built, I mean, there's all kinds of basically physiological rules that you go by, which is like, don't give critique at three o'clock in the afternoon when no one's eaten or like when they're hungry or when they're tired, you know, don't give critique at the last minute of the day. Like do think about it during the morning. Like, so like there's things like that. Never critique something the day before it's due, you know, that kind of stuff. But then the basic rules were threefold, which is that I would go in, 
I had the power. I was the boss and I was giving critique, right? So I would go in and say, listen, hey, I'm, I'm about to give you critique or feedback. Like, what can't I touch today? Like, what are the things that you feel so precious about or you feel like so connected to that you can't bear it? And they would tell me. And then wow. I, would, I would say, what are the things that you really need my help on? And I was like, okay, now give the rules back to me. So I had the rules again. And I was like, now we're going to just work on the things that we care about. And then often what you would find is once you started to do that, people be willing to have you look at other parts of the work as well. Because it, it felt more like it felt more equal, more about camaraderie and connection and co-working. Yeah. It really worked, Jane. I mean, it was like, it's, yeah. a, it's it, people think in a design firm, all the rules are, are about inspiring creativity are the most important rules. Yeah, because I used to run a, a design agency as well. And if you don't critique the work, then standards are not high enough and you won't win the business. So, so it is something that has to happen constantly, doesn't it? So I just love that because it's very, very interesting to hear how you actually approach that. You said something really insightful, actually. If you don't critique the work, which is different than saying critiquing the team or critiquing the designer or whatever. So it's like, it's really keeping the critique focused on the work, which is other. And so I think yeah, I just wanted to call that out because I thought that was that's a really important insight into the way we think about critique in, in the design field. Yeah, thank you. So the four pillars in your book are commitment, creative listening, clarity, and context. So I'd love to go through those just in turn and just look at those as general concepts. So if we start off with commitment, Fred, what does commitment actually mean in the context of conversation? Yeah. Commitment is chapter one in the book. And just to be honest, like when I got to commitment, there were six chapters in the book and I added commitment as a seventh because I'd given a lecture to, uh, to Aspen Institute in, in the US and, um, and got through the whole lecture. People were loving it and somebody raised their hand and they're like, well, I don't quite buy it because what happens when you go into a conversation and somebody already hates you and doesn't want to talk to you? And I was like, oh, right that happens. <laughs> it's like, it's like that is definitely the case. And so out of the blue, I basically was like, well, you need to learn to commit to the person and the conversation first and hold values and ideals secondary, which is, I think, interestingly, has roots in improvisational theater. Great actors are really committed to the other performers. And that's how great performances happen. There's a lot of kind of story, there's a lot of history around when, how commitment allows us to kind of get through some of our most creative work. But it's also true for the people that we meet every day. You know, it's like, you don't have to talk politics first thing. You can just talk about like the weather. And actually, by the way, the weather often is the most interesting thing to talk about. You know, it's like nowadays, it's like, what, why is it suddenly like in America we have the same weather now across the whole country. But it's like, I, I think, for instance, we think we have to like dive into the deep stuff and like, you know, you can gradually build into it. I, I had a situation where, you know, I work with world leaders. So where I'm like having to tell like a former president that they are going to have to get on Zoom, even if they don't want to, things like that. And I'm like, and so that's easy. I can do that. But I had an experience earlier in the year where someone was hunting my property who was you know, didn't vote the same way I did, you could tell. And I sat there being like, well, if I would, if I can talk to like, so and so ex president, and like, tell them what to do, I can talk to my hunter. And so I just went up to him. And I was like, Hey, what's your name? This is mine. Whatever. We just we just talked. We just talked about him being safe and maybe giving us some venison and stuff like that. But then we'd never even talked about politics. But over the couple months afterwards, it really began to open up. And we had really different kinds of conversations. And that's because I committed to him 
and with, and his young son who was with him before I did committed to like, you know, any kind of ideological conversation. Mm, that's, that's really interesting. And it's hard, right? Because we're taught to put our values first. So it's like when you kind of are like, ah, hold it back a little bit, like it can be really, can be really helpful. So. Yeah, I like that conceptually because really what it's, it's a kind of people first approach rather than putting ideas and concepts before people. So there's a very clear order of things. And I love that. I also think it's really interesting and and perhaps useful for your listeners to think about this within the workplace context, which is that you'll often have somebody in your workforce who is like the consistent and constant naysayer, right? Who's always just like, they will often justify that by being like the one who will say, oh, well, we need this. We need somebody to continually push against the thing. And I'm like, yeah, maybe not so much. Like, you know, it's like, like, like there are plenty of, I have, I sit on boards where a board member will be like, you know, I don't really believe in the mission of the organization, but they need somebody to kind of push against them. And I, I don't believe they can make it, but they need, and I'm like, yeah, I think we'd be better off without you on the board. I think there's moments where you have to kind of look even at the people who are, who are within you and be like, is this really helping? Are we getting a good kind of creative tension or is it just nonstop friction and, and begin to think that way? Yeah. And I- in a way, it's a different attitude, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it's different values. That attitude is actually driven by a different mindset and a different view of the world. That's right. I'm just loving this conversation. It's great. Yeah. So let's get on to creative listening, Fred. So talk about a bit more about that. How do you listen creatively in order to get better outcomes? from your conversation. Yeah. And this was actually originally, this is kind of like, I always said it was like, it was all negative. It was like, this was originally written as kind of a screed against a thing called active listening. Active listening is kind of, you see a lot, a lot in HR departments where people are like, go on, you know, please, you know, it's like, and what active listening in the workplace does is it basically gives the boss or the HR person the excuse to not necessarily agree with what, what whatever grievance they're hearing, but instead just kind of like let them kind of voice it. And it comes out of a tradition of therapy, Rogerian therapy, in which it was very good. The idea was like by active listening, you help the individual unlock their own problems, things that the, the therapists themselves couldn't see. And it's great for journalists. You know, it's great for interviews because it's like, you know, if you let me go on long enough, I'll say something that's the exact opposite of what I should be saying. So it's like, there's a lot of places where active listening <laughs> really, really works. But, but in the workplace, I think it's actually quite detrimental. And so one of the things that I really look at, and I think this relates to both like you talking to your people, but also you talking to your consumers, is really listening in a deep way to learn from them, to be curious from them, to in essence, like I used to say this to my designers, like you need to fall in love with the people you're designing for, because otherwise you're not going to make something that's good. If you're like, eh, they're okay, then you're going to make something that's just okay for them. And so what that meant was really kind of listening in a kind of really deep and connected way. Funny story, Jane, like early on in podcasts or interviews, people would be like, well, I'm assuming you learned everything from IDEO, which is the design firm I worked for. And I was like, yeah, not so much. (laughs) Because I learned about listening and how to ask for perfect story and storytelling and the creativity of listening and listening like it's gossip from my mom and my great grandmother. Like they were like phenomenal storytellers and phenomenal listeners. And really it's all of their work that actually kind of permeates all the way forward to the work I do today. Yeah. I mean, you were in that position at IDEO, but you were in that position because you had those skills, those storytelling and listening and 
conversational skills already because nobody gets to the top of an organization like that without those kind of skills. And I have to say, the most skilled communicators of all and the most advanced communicators are people at the top of global media agencies because they have to be in order to be taken seriously and to win those multi-million pound contracts. So, yeah, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to be exposed to some of those people and the bar's high, the bar is very high. And you don't just learn it within an organization, you have to develop yourself, don't you, to have some of those skills already, but also to continually commit to and to develop them in order to reach those Positions. It's so funny because it's like, you know, I, get, I give lectures to business schools like fairly frequently. And, and I just did one last week for Stern or two weeks ago for Stern, which is the business school here in New York, NYU. I give them all kinds of tips and tricks and things to do. But in the end, I'm like, unfortunately, it's just practice. Like it's like <laughs> it is what it is. And it's a practice that I often think that one of the things that happens in the design education is that we don't ask people to practice explaining their work or kind of having a dialogue around the work. We expect the work to stand for itself. And in fact, there needs to be much more to kind of to give the context of the work that has to happen. So, but also, I mean, it's funny, I will say there are moments where with clients where I've just been like, we're going to show you something and you have no choice. <laughs> it's like, and, and it's like, you just have to commit to it up front. And I'm like, Half of you are going to hate it, half you're going to love it, but it's it's kind of it's the right thing, and it's like I think if you do that in the right way, sometimes people are like, oh yeah, okay, it's like, it's sort of a relief to not have to make the decision. So I mean, one of the things I like about the book is I'm like, do it until you don't, like until you feel like you don't need to do it anymore, like it's okay. So yeah, but yeah, I mean, when I think back about some of the creative directors that I work with, and I work with some really good creative directors, they were always quite challenging actually with the clients yeah. because. The clients are not in that position of being creatives themselves, and sometimes they don't know what is best for them, and they do need to be told. And that leadership position is important, I think. That's why communication is so important, because, of course, everybody, particularly clients, they might want to have it their way, but a lot of the time they don't know what they don't know, and they do need to be told, which is why that kind of intersection of communication is just, it's just so critical, isn't it? Because if you get it wrong, then they just won't respect you and they won't actually end up getting good work. But you get it right. And even if they thought they didn't really understand it or understand the reason why, the work actually goes on to do really achieve really powerful results for them. Yeah. So it's a very interesting area, I think. It is. <laughs> and there's, there's a lot of nuance. I, I did an interview for a public board and that didn't end up choosing me. And as I was going through the final process, I was like, what would keep you from choosing me from to be on this public board? And they were like, well, to be honest, you're going to remind us of our really annoying mother who will always tell us something, what to do. And no one wanted to listen. And she was always right. And I was like, yeah, okay. And so I, I think they just didn't want the annoying mother who was going to like, who was going to do that. So I was fine with it. So yeah, yeah, because I would say some people are not your people. And <laughs> if you just want somebody who's going to say yes to you, then, well, I guess, you know, it will suit some people. But what's the fun in that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So let's go on to talk about clarity as well, Fred. I mean, that's so important, isn't it? So how do you achieve clarity in conversations? Yeah, and I think especially so in the work that you do and in a lot of what you're talking about with the podcast. I mean. 
one of the kind of the, the primary premises, and as a little background, the chapter called Clarity was originally called Talk Normal, because I was like, what's clearer than just saying Talk Normal? But of course, the publishers really wanted seven C's, so that's where it went. But the idea around Clarity is that so often we use like one word or two words or a couple words that actually are just not known. And, and the example I give like right at the forefront of the book is that in the U.S., probably more in the U.S. necessarily in the U.K., the term triage is used quite frequently in an emergency room. And when I would go and do polls, yeah, and, and that's, you know, having emerged from World War One, really during trench warfare, it's like it's embedded in many people's kind of mindset. In the U.S. now, not so much. And so like if you go into an emergency room and like they're supposed to go to a triage desk, like that's great. If you don't know what triage is, then you don't go to that desk and you may miss a whole kind of like window of being served. And so that's a great example of where all, all you have to do is say, go here first. <laughs> like you don't, you need to have a, a terminology to like, and, and so often we let terminology kind of like dictate the example I give in the book, which is my favorite. And I think I'm sure it might, might it kind of might resonate for you is wine shops. So we had a long period of time where we were working with wine companies and they were just always trying to think about the right language. So it's like they use visual language and you know, taste-based language and all kinds of things. And yet people just find wine language really intimidating. And so I went, I worked with one shop that basically decided to get rid of wine language altogether and replaced it with like language from the tabloids. So, so basically it would say, oh, you know, this wine really... I'm not going to make any Royals jokes right now. Um, this wine really tastes like Taylor Swift. It's melodic and goes down re- really well. It's something like that. So they would, they would use celebrity analogies and you'd be like, oh yeah, tonight I feel like I could really listen to some Adele or listen, listen to or, or drink some Adele. That's like that. That sounds like smooth and fulsome oh. and deep. And, and it worked. People really got it. So you can use it in so many different ways. I think it's especially powerful in marketing. And I also think it's especially dangerous when used in the wrong hands. So who's really good at using language and labels? Politicians, right? It's like why for years... Oh, yeah. For years, we talked about the wall, right? As opposed to like the implications of what the wall did. This is the US. It's like, I'd be curious, like, what, what are some terms that really kind of the out of UK that really kind of they sort of hide the real meaning behind it. But you know how it is like politicians are really good at like, we'll just this one thing, you know, something and we're missing the nuance around all of what it means. Yeah. So I was actually talking about this on a podcast with this guy called Bill Schley. I don't know if you've ever Mm. heard of him, but he wrote this book called The Microscript Rules. So Mm. he's all about how you can tell a story in a sentence or a short phrase. So he was using examples like make America great. This is, of course, the Trump saying, we make America great again. And those little lines, those three or four words that actually they tap directly into the imagination and they get your brains kind of working because they get right to the heart of your emotion and your desires and your feeling that nothing's right. right. And that somehow this is going to be fixed. Yeah. And it's just going to be fixed as easily as that because it's like a shortcut. Yeah. You see, so that's what a microscript is. And historically, that's been used. I mean, I was just doing something at School World Forum about exactly that. Like, I think if you look back at things like Manifest Destiny, right? And like what words, words that basically like have set forward whole movements in history. Brexit, really, as a short phrase, like that actually establishes a whole different, yeah. different kind of direction. And so there's those, I have a section of the book called Illuminations, which is more about a 20 second story, but I really think it's those 
two or three sentence or three, three word phrases that often become some of the more risky ones. Here right now, we're really dealing with anti-maskers because there's no reason to understand exactly why someone's masked or not. And so we put a lot of political assumptions onto anti-maskers, a political or class assumption that are actually inaccurate. So there's a lot to, to unpack. And, and I just, so sorry, a little political message for your listeners, really be careful falling into those terms because the, those are actually, in fact, alienating in many ways to the people that you need to be talking to. Yeah, that's very, very interesting because in a way it, it is a little bit Machiavellian, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's slightly, it's dark arts because language is so powerful, isn't it? If you think about it, just a, those few short words that they can really influence, persuade people in directions that they may not have envisaged for themselves. So that can be very disempowering. I think that's right. You know, it's like we, it's funny, we have a, our immigration bureau. I don't know if you know, but the immigration bureau, the acronym here is it's ICE is what it is. And I was talking to immigration bureau. I did a lecture for them uh, a couple of weeks back. And I was like, you know, you ought, to, you ought to change the name. And they were like, yeah, we really want to change the name because, because it's like ice feels cold and kind of scary. And it's, it's really interesting. And that was kind of shouldered. They, that was put onto them after 9-11, but they've really been trying to change the name since. So, Yeah, so that's really fascinating. Let's move on to context now, yeah. Fred. So why is context important? Before we do, I have just one, sorry, one last thing that I was just thinking about, especially for your listeners. If you're building products or if you're building things, it's like, it's like, think really carefully about the names because it's like, you may accidentally be carrying connotations over into your, into your marketplace of the things that you don't want to. So it's just something, I mean, I geek, I geek out on naming. It's an interesting one. So do you have any examples of that, Fred? Any, any examples that you can think of, of a name that has inadvertently given out the wrong the wrong message. I think there's they're sort, of, sort of myriads of names. I'll tell you a really interesting example. This is a little meta, but like oceanographers over the last 15 years have really been trying to change the word oceans to ocean. And the reason why is that, that oceans suggest that you have multiple independent water sources that are not reliant. The word ocean, if you say the Earth's ocean, is saying all of our water is interwoven. And so that means that like what happens in India affects what happens in, in North America. And they've changed the name from oceans to ocean, except recently the UN had finally, after 10 years of petitioning, uh, like agreed to an, a world oceans day. And so they had to decide, are they going to stop it for the name? They were like, no, we, we <laughs> the name doesn't matter that much. It matters until it doesn't matter. But, but yeah, I can think of like, tons of products where you're like, oh, they should have maybe considered that like in different ways, but it'd be fun. Like at some point we just like write down a list and of, of all the... <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, and just literally that one letter conjures up something very, very different, doesn't it? Because the idea of ocean is that everything is interconnected and the ocean is a part of our world. Right. But it isn't, it's, we've only just... If you are giving it the name Indian Ocean, Pacific Ocean, Atlantic Ocean, or whatever, it does imply that it's almost like like a landmass, and exactly it's something right. that's entirely constructed by us as humans, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, <laughs> thanks for getting really geeky with me. <laughs> oh, I love language. Yeah. So you were asking about context. You know, it's funny when the book was coming out. Given that we were in the middle of pandemic, we still are. 
I was like, oh, context doesn't matter at all. And in fact, context matters as much today as it ever does. And the premise of context was really that there are, going back to your like the that your previous guest who was talking about like micro scripts, there are scripts embedded in everything. There are scripts embedded in agenda, there are scripts embedded in the rules, there are scripts that are embedded in all kinds of different things. But one of the places where scripts are kind of play out most significantly is in space, right? So like, if I say board meeting, how would you describe that? I immediately, I think about a long table, probably oak, and a lot of people sitting around with quite a big distance between them. And I think about people in suits and it being very formal and having an agenda and not having a lot of freedom or creativity. Yeah. That, that's what it conjures up to me. Yeah. And universally, when I say board meeting, they, they might go through all different things, but people will always say a long wooden table. Like that's like always, which is really, really interesting, right? So they always begin with something that's a spatial cue. And that's because, could you imagine wanting to have a casual lunch at a board meeting in a boardroom? Like not so much. It may be if you're going to pull up at the right corner or something like that. But it's like, the reality is that space does establish the queue. And this is true if you're a small business. This is certainly true if you're a storefront, depending on the way you, you play, the way your space kind of is established kind of makes a big difference. We've been having a really interesting conversation with the woman who runs the local wine store because it's been the pandemic. And she's like, I don't want these people in my store. It's like, and so like, she's kind of created a porch service, but people are like, that's not the way wine gets bought. And they're like, that's the way wine gets bought now. Like, that's the way you're going to do it. Like, it's, she's extremely careful about the pandemic. So I, I would say that space really establishes so much. Like, I'll, I'll give you two interesting examples. One that's really basic. Like, I, I would often talk about when you have a meeting that you would set that room up for the meeting you want to have. So collectively, you would wipe down the whiteboard so that there was nothing that somebody else had written on it. You would take out furniture that wasn't needed. You would take out a podium if you weren't going to use it so that you made the room purpose fit for the meeting that you were going to have. Because often what would happen is if you've got like all somebody else's notes on the wall, then that meeting is what kind of is, that's the meeting that's haunting that room. So it's really kind of like making sure. And it's the same thing with head home with family. It's like setting the table for the conversation you want really makes a difference. But there's something more insidious about context that I think is really intriguing. And that is that our memories, like we have, there's a lot of things that memories use to kind of to create the mnemonic mnemonic. It can use a sound or a smell like you might like if you imagine you smell like bread baking, you might think of somebody in your life who bakes bread, things like that. But but one of the most predominant ways that our mind maps memories is using space as a mnemonic. Uh, I mean, for instance, I'll use an example from the UK. I remember exactly where I was when I heard about Brexit, the the Brexit vote, not to get into politics, but it's just like as an example where it's like, I was at a very early morning breakfast at the Metropolitan Museum. It was like eight people. It was a very, this distinct moment to get to sort of see what it's like. And interestingly, I haven't gone to one of those breakfasts again because it's haunted by a fairly bad memory. Because it's like, like I remember having to be on phone calls calling everybody in the UK office to say like, I'm so sorry. I remember really clearly where I was in 9-11. and one of the things oh, that, so I, do I. yeah, exactly. And, and oh, I'll never forget that moment. It's like there in history. I mean, how everybody around the world must remember where they were when they saw that thing happening. Totally. But there's other things like this as well. Like there's the office in a building where everybody always gets fired, right? Like that, you know, how there's always like that kind of leftover office where people go to and like, 
don't go have meetings in that office. <laughs> I, I talked to a mother and daughter who had nonstop debate about food. And I was like, stop eating together at the dining room table. Like, just stop. It's, it's like, and it, it ended it. Like, it's, it's like, take away the mnemonic of, of the table and that specific dining room table. And you can actually shift the conversation. I just would say, like, one of the most important parts of the book is this thing that I called script spotting, which is like learning to get really good at spotting scripts that are embedded in an agenda, in a dynamic, in a space. Mm. And space is a great one because we've been raised in space, right? So we, we know what space is like. So not all of us have been raised in an agenda, hopefully. So it's easy, hopefully, to start to spot, oh, here's what this kind of space might be good for or not good for. One last thing on it is that there's scientific studies that basically say things like, this is actually proven, that if you speak to somebody, just say three feet up in the air, so like on three steps up on the Metropolitan Museum stairs, you'll have a sense of elevation and your conversation is lighter and, and happier. So really thinking about context in a significant way can shift the conversations that happen. Yeah, I remember uh, there was one guy that he always used to have his business meetings in the Gherkin. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Gherkin, but yeah. it's in the city in London. And they have the most beautiful views. It's a beautiful building and they have walkways that you go around the outside. So he used to say, you know, I love to have my meetings here because people can look down. They're aspirational. They come to me because they're aspirational. They want to get somewhere in their life and they can look down and they can see the city of London beneath them. And it gives them a really good feeling. And, you know, I looked down and I thought, you know what, that thing of actually looking down and you see the whole of London before you. And I remember when we sold our business, I remember we went all the way up to the top of the building. That's why boardrooms are often at the top, That's aren't right. they? Because you feel like you've made it. You walk out of the lift and you look down and there it is. So, you know, the world is at your feet. And so it's very symbolic, isn't it? it that, really, that thing about space and context. I totally get that. No, it's really yeah. true. And it, it even happens over Zoom. You know, so for instance, I did an interview with Fortune that was in Hong Kong, which was a really interesting moment because it was like an interesting moment to have a nuanced conversation about politics, given the, the moment that Hong Kong was in when I was when I gave the interview. And it was like, for me, it was 10 o'clock at night. But it's like where this guy was giving the interview from, I recognized the view. I'd been in that building. I knew the buildings that I was looking out on. And there was something really remarkable about the expansiveness I was feeling as we went. So it, it ended up going very long, the interview, because I was like looking out over Hong Kong and a part of Hong Kong that I knew. And it brought back all kinds of spectacular memories of what it means to be on the rooftops in Hong Kong and, and how kind of like you feel like a power player, even if you're not in that context. So yeah, it matters quite a bit. Wow. Well, one, one thing that we're hearing a lot is a lot of CEOs who are saying, Oh, wow, I see my employees in different ways now that I see them at home or vice versa. That, you know, getting to see people in a different kind of context actually is allowing for kind of more empathy for, for people who are in, in the co-working context. That's very interesting because, of course, we've had a complete uh, revolution in terms of context, as you said, because since the world went online, really, then... Some people have virtual backgrounds, but a lot of the time people, they do sit in their own environment and, and you do get a, a sense, more of a personal sense for them than if they were sitting in their desk at, in your environment, yes. right? So 
That's been very, very interesting. And of course, on TV as well, we've all got used to seeing some quite high profile people with messy kitchens in the background <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> or you know, kids' toys and things like that. And so it does just bring more of the personal character really into dialogues and discussions, doesn't it? it does. So, which I think perhaps makes up for that screen mediated distance yeah to a certain extent. I've seen a real change you know I noticed that I told you that I was I, I had been teaching and I taught last spring and I would say the v- majority of the students had their cameras off or had f- fake backgrounds whereas like this year everyone almost to a T had their cameras on and I think we've gotten really? comfortable with the idea of being like this is it you know it's kind of it's, this it's, is me this is me like get used to it so which I think is kind of kind of remarkable yeah, but, um, yeah lovely so I'd love to go on to looking at this whole issue of disconnection, mental health, addiction, the crisis that is just really everywhere in the world. I mean, this is very personal to me because sadly, my brother died of alcoholism. Um, and I know that there was a connection issue there because I personally know how important it is if you're struggling to reach out and actually talk to people who you can be completely and utterly yourself with and who will listen to you and actually give you their full attention. Because to me, that's an incredibly healing thing. Why is it, do you think, that the world at large doesn't really get that or doesn't perhaps gets it, but doesn't actually act on it and doesn't take the opportunity to connect with people and have those conversations? You know, I mean, what's interesting, and I don't know if you feel this way after the death of your brother, I too lost my brother to alcoholism, oh. as well as my mom. I mean, he actually died in a car crash, but it was alcohol related. And so sad. Oh, yeah, no. And what I sort of you begin to realize, and I don't know if this is the case for you, is that there's almost like two different worlds. There's the people who've experienced what it means to go through that loss. And then there's the people who haven't. And, and so I, I hate to say that often, it's that experience that actually kind of wakes you up. But my mom, who I told you was an amazing communicator, she had a stroke when I was 24 that left her aphasic and inability to communicate for the rest of her life. And so at that point, I was like, oh, wow, like I have a timestamp. I need to be doing this. So it's like, so I hate to sort of say experience becomes the, 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 the kind of key trigger to allow you to kind of sort of see it. But I think there's a more basic thing, which is that it's like, what more fundamental work do we have to do in life than to connect with people. It's like, it's, it's just, it's what it is. And and I was thinking about this, I write about pilgrimage in the book and the idea of going on a pilgrimage is really fascinating because we often are kind of walking in all different directions, but rarely do we understand what it's like to all walk in the same direction at once. And what happens when you do that is that you only offer encouragement to the people who are walking alongside of you, because there's no reason to turn to somebody who's kind of limping next to you and be like, yeah, get off the road. Like, that's not the way it is. You're all trying to get someplace together. And if you think about life as an essence, kind of a long pilgrimage where we all are headed someplace together, whether we like it or not, then there really doesn't seem like there would be much disincentive to think about anything but connecting and being connected. That said, it's it's hard. I mean, there are people who are stuck in place. You know, there, we have people who are different degrees of shyness. A lot of the things that we built, my team and I, have been ways for people who are quite shy to still participate in a group conversation, often by using movement or something like that as an indicator. And then we are in the process of building, it's a secret game called Campfire, which is actually all about opening up intimacy between people who might not yeah. feel it. And we just we just played a, a demo game on Thursday with sort of a set of strangers and had a 
fairly cathartic moment where people, one of the people there who'd lost a parent opened up in a way that we'd never seen them do and received only love and compassion and caring from the people in the room. So, I mean, all I'm saying is that, that there are devices out there that allow us to do it. And the reason we built the campfire is it's kind of a secret game that we think is entirely about helping people kind of make connections that might not otherwise make it. So, Oh, that sounds great. And how do people access the campfire? Well, like, or is it just it's, it's secret. I will tell you it's spelled C-A-M-P-H-Y-R-E, and it will be up and running in about two or three weeks. So out. And we also, I will tell you that we do have audio content that's basically, yeah. which is just a, like a little, it's everyday 90 second content that you can access that helps train you. So if anyone's interested, do you mind if I do a quick promo for it? Oh, absolutely. No, we were talking about it beforehand. And I just love the idea of it. It's amazing. So yeah, please go it's, right on. It's 90 seconds a day. It's like, try this. It's me, me and my voice. You definitely get annoyed by my voice, but at the end of 14 days, but it's like, and, and it gives you little exercises. But if you're interested, you can just WhatsApp um, or text the link. So it's a US area code. So it's one 203 one nine nine seven. Maybe it's zero one. I can't remember. But eight four four two oh three one nine nine seven. And it's all it's delivered through WhatsApp every morning. You get a little text and it's pretty fun and easy. The reason why I love the idea of that is it's just a, a little nugget. And that was what we were talking about beforehand. It's a little nugget really just to set you up for the day and make your communications and your conversations better and your connection better. And what could be more important than that? Yeah, and, so and, you- and what all I'm trying to do with the book and with in general is just kind of like give people just enough inspiration to find the things that they feel like they can actually kind of move forward with. You know, so it's like it's because it's again it's not me, it's you, right? It's like, how do, how do you feel most comfortable having the conversations that matter the most? Mm-hmm. And, and how do you get better? And how do you practice more? So it's been really fun to be playing around with this stuff. Yeah. So before we go, what I'd like to ask you, Fred, because I have an audience of early stage entrepreneurs, solopreneurs and small business owners, as we were talking about earlier. So what is your top one or two tips for them to use conversations in business to improve their success and their business outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I'll throw. It's funny. I, I write a lot on this for Medium, so there's a, quite a few pieces up. But one of the things I just I just wrote something on pitches. So I don't know how many of your your people feel like they have to go into pitch constructs. But one of the things I, I, I talk about in a pitch mode. I'm not a big fan of pitch. First of all, of pitching. I, th- I think there's, there's something fundamentally inequitable about the structure, but but I do think that there's some things that people should be wary of. So one of the things I'm seeing a lot of is people kind of dropping the word ethical into their business plan. So they're basically like, we're the first corner grocery store, but it's all ethically and sustainably, or, or we're the only ethical newspaper that's out there. And it's a very easy thing to unpack and be like, well, let's talk about that, you know, (laughs) because it's like, if you got a paywall through your new subscription, you're already potentially not as ethical as you should be. So I'd be wary of the terms that you use as you're as you're pitching. So that's kind of clever enough. As we talked about clarity, it's like really careful around that. I would say it's like, we love passion. You also need to understand the business plan. <laughs> it's like so. It's like I have a I have a guy who just pitched me, and we're like, we love you, and we love the way you describe the work. We have no construct of how the business works. Like it's it's like we really we really need to understand what the service is. But again, I think passion really does show. You know, it's like it really it really matters. And I guess the last thing that I would say is like, if you care about it, 
like talk about it all the time. You know, honestly, I think that one of the things that helps manifest a vision in the world is kind of continuously putting it out there and really kind of, yeah. you know, and you come from a brand and, and marketing that background. If you're not willing to put it out there and talk about it, then like you're not going to get reap the rewards of what it is. But I do sort of believe that those people who really kind of talk some talk, 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 talk about the things they care about do in fact manifest in, in, in a way. So I certainly do it. Like when I met with the publicity team at HarperCollins, my publisher was like, you thought he was a writer. He's a marketer. And I was like, yeah, fine with that. Well, you know, writing, I mean, writing and marketing, that's, you know, they're, they're so closely intertwined, aren't they? Because it's just, we use language to sell, don't we? And we use language to stand out. And that's really what marketing is all about. It's about standing out and, and selling and building a tribe and a movement and, and uh, a following and buyers, of course. Yeah. So it all comes from your message and from language. I just think it's the most powerful tool that we have as, as humans. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. What an amazing and inspiring conversation we've had today, Fred. It's been so great to talk about conversations with you and connection. So, Fred, if anybody wants to find you, follow you, connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, there's multiple ways. I mean, you can you can go to makingconversation.com, which is the, the, the website, and that has all my socials. You can, of course, buy the book. I know it's available at Amazon UK right now. I think that it's gone slow into the independent book chains, unfortunately, just because it's that's the way it is. It's like it's mostly it's Amazon. But uh, yeah, and then and check out the audio content or follow me i don't know my socials offhand so it's, it's somebody of, probably does yeah, it for you right exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah so like twitter instagram things like that but yeah but please i'd love to hear from you all amazing well thank you again fred and uh really look forward to the podcast episode coming out and thank you very much for joining us it's been such a privilege and a pleasure such a pleasure thanks jane thanks for listening in if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to rate and review my podcast as it will help me bring the power of connection to the world. I work one-to-one -to, -one to help entrepreneurs ignite the power of authentic connection in their businesses and lives. I also help them accelerate their results through attracting and converting more of their ideal clients. And if this is something you'd like to do too, why not head on over to www.idealclientsuccess.com masterclass and I'll show you how.